Thank you so much, worship team. Amazing grace, right? Powerful concept and such a great song. Thank you for leading us in that. Well, hey, welcome to uh, part four of a five-part series called Tattered Life, Timeless Legacy. And we, uh, f- we are uh, in the middle of a study on the life of David in the Old Testament, uh, uh, a study which I always appreciate and I always enjoy, a chance to look at people and characters in the Old Testament and find out what they're all about. Now, the titling gives us a way, I hope for you, that you will see, if you have not seen already, that King David indeed has a tattered life. He is a man of great sin, and we're going to actually get into that one today. But his legacy is timeless, and his character is something that we look at. And I've said it every time, I think, that we actually name children David because of this man, even though he sinned so greatly. And so then we're conclude, we leave with the conclusion that God's grace goes even further than our deepest sin. And if you get nothing else from the life of David, that alone is worth taking home with you. When you get stuck into the depths of your own sin, your own inadequacies, realize people like David have been in places far worse than you, and yet God's grace has brought them through. All right. So in week one, we looked at David in the beginning of his life as a king and this young boy who was chosen by Samuel, chosen by God, and Samuel anointed him as the youngest or the smallest in his tribe and in his family, and he was brought out from there to be the king. And we learned there that a life is best measured by the immeasurables, okay? that it's not just about what you look like or how smart you are or whatever it is, but that God looks at things a little bit differently. Week number two, we talked about David versus... Oh, come on, that was kind of weak. David versus... Hey, there we go. All right. David versus Goliath, big story, big principles. We talked about this reality that, that there's always going to be a challenge that kind of comes at us morning and evening about our faith. Is our faith too small to handle whatever, whatever, whatever? And David stepped right up and into that reality. So it was David versus Goliath in week two. Week three, a little bit, was last week. A little uh, small story in the life of David. And it was kind of David versus Saul last week and David versus Goliath the week before. Remember Saul? came in to look for him with 3,000 special forces in the, the caves in the area called En Gedi at that point. And if you were here and, or heard this later online, you know that, that Saul needed to take a little, little restroom break in the cave. And, and there was David in that cave, and David ends up cutting the robe off of his, his, uh, his garment there. And we, we talked about this struggle of not trying to control or manipulate our future and not trying to hold too tightly to things that we are, we're just wanting to have on our own. And we talked about that balance and the struggle between wanting to control life when it seems out of control like it was for David. This week, it's David versus somebody else. So this week, it's David versus, in my opinion, the hardest enemy that he has faced yet. Um, one might say that Goliath was the worst enemy, the tough one, just because of the, the physical dominance that he presented, but I don't think that's the case. And we have David versus Saul, but this morning, we're going to look at David versus himself. And if you're a historian at all, you may have heard the phrase, uh, we have found the enemy, and it is us. Attributed either to Winston Churchill or Pogo the cartoonist, depending on what you might uh, listen to or believe is the history behind that quote. But the point being, we have found the enemy, and we are he. We are it, we are them, however that is phrased. And this is the issue this morning that that David has found an enemy, and the bad news is it's himself. Now, we've got to bring you up to speed because we are going to move through a lot of history from last week to this week in the life of David. David, um, back in the caves where we left him in in Getty when he cut off the robe, he was probably in his uh, early 20s at that point, maybe just a little bit uh, in the mid-20s. Um, an incredible thought to, to think of 
people who are young adults now, right in their 20s, and the amazing things that you can actually do if you believe you could do that and you serve a great God. Now we move, we move probably 20, 25 years from last week to this week. We are now dealing with King David in his 50s. Okay, we're talking about a man in his 50s. So there's a lot that's happened. We need to understand that. This king has now proven himself to be a very faithful shepherd of the people of the nation of Israel. He's proven himself valiant on the battlefield. He's proven himself to be compassionate with people that other kings would have killed. The strange, fun, interesting little story is told of Mephibosheth. All right, that's the only time I will say that name correctly. Don't ask me to do that again. Some of you know that story. Mephibosheth was a descendant of Saul. And he was actually uh, disabled. And David took care of him and invited him to the king's table. An extremely uh, honorable act for a king to do. Most kings kill all the descendants of the previous predecessors. David not only spares the lives of Saul's descendants, but invites even those who are disabled among his descendants to his table. An incredible, incredible statement in this culture, in this era. King David's reputation is solid and growing. He is a stable, godly, loving, honorable man who is leading the nation of Israel well. But, behind the scenes, just like a seawall is put up to protect the shore from the oncoming current of the ocean, there's an ocean and a current of temptation and struggle that's hitting David's personal life that is slowly eroding his seawall of personal protection. If you look at him from the outside, everything looks great. But the current has been hitting him personally for years. And there's an erosion personally that's going on in his life. In Deuteronomy 17, God made it clear to the nation of Israel and to the kings in Israel that they are not to do three things. They are not to multiply horses or go back to Egypt to multiply horses. They're not to multiply wives unto themselves. And they're not to multiply gold and silver unto themselves. Deuteronomy 17, 14-17 lays that out for the kings of Israel. David succeeded in two of those, but not in all three. He did not multiply horses so that he would be just dependent on his own army and, and you know, uh, snub God's protection and provision for him. He did not multiply horses. He did not multiply wealth unto himself. He was not king so that he could just get all the money. He did, however, multiply wives over and over. He had a great harem, as we call it. He had a lot of women who he was married to and who he wasn't married to. This was a problem for King David, a major problem. Now here's the other problem is when, when everything else, though, is going so well, who's going to be the one to talk to the king about the one thing that isn't going well? Who is it in the kingdom who has the authority to come up to King David who is succeeding in every other area and say, hey, David, just a little something. I know it doesn't actually seem to impact anything around you. In fact, everything is going so well. But remember that Deuteronomy passage about multiplying wives? Like, you're not, you're not doing good there. Who has the authority to do that? I, I love the way Chuck Swindoll puts it when he writes this. He says, Who in the kingdom is qualified to blow the whistle on David? Look at his track record. A humble beginning, a giant killer, two decades of sterling leadership, choice men in the right places, a military force every foe respected, enlarged boundaries that now reached 60,000 square miles. No defeats on the battlefield. Imagine that. 
exports, imports, strong national defense, financial health, a beautiful new home, plans for the temple of the Lord. Who could point a finger of accusation against such a king? It's, it's a fair question. Who would do it and on what grounds? If the proof is in the pudding, man, I'm telling you, David is doing something right. But in the background, in his own personal life, there's something very wrong. And the problem for David is that a big moment is about to come in his life. A big moment in which he is going to come up small. And the reason that he's going to come up small in this big moment is because he has lived an unguarded life for years and years and years. Now here's what I want to tell you this morning. Many of us wish we could predict the future. Many of us wish we could know what we could become in a couple years, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the next generation, whatever it is. We're planning for and hoping for the future. And here's what I want to tell you. This is what I believe you can take to the bank in terms of your future, this principle here. That, that coming up small in big moments is predictable if we live unguarded. That coming up small in big moments for you and for me is just flat out predictable if we live unguarded. I want to draw out what I mean by unguarded, but here's what I want you to know, that there are certain behaviors and choices that we make that will turn your life and my life into a very predictable pattern if we're not guarded with our lives. And here's what happened with King David. He began to multiply wives, and slowly and slowly and slowly, that seawall began eroding, and a big moment came, and he came up small in that moment, and it changed everything about him and the people around him. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Samuel, a book in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew around you, and that Bible uh, is our gift to you this morning. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we'd love to have you take that with you if you would like um, and, and consider it our gift to you. 2 Samuel is, I think, if my math is right, about the 10th book in the Old Testament. So you can start from Genesis and just start moving a few pages off to your right and you'll end up finding the book of 2 Samuel. And a little hint, it comes right after 1 Samuel. Look at the sharp, bunch of sharp, sharp people here this morning. All right. So here's, here's the setup. Before we start reading into this, 2 Samuel, um, the story begins with a battle. Okay, the story begins with a battle, and springtime has come, not unlike the time that we're in now, though we're a little in the back end of spring, and some might argue we've been in summer at least this weekend, but we're, we're in springtime in 2 Samuel now. And in the springtime, kings go to battle, it's what they do. You and me, in the springtime, we mulch and weed and mow. In the springtime for kings, they go to battle, that's just what they do. And so David sends his nation of Israel into battle. And the reason they do that is the weather is, is right and also that food is available. Think about it that way. As they're traveling through the land, the food is available for them in the fields in which they're going to go. So they have two phases to this military operation that they're on. The first is destroy the Ammonites. That's their plan. We're going to destroy the Ammonites. And second is to lay siege to a city called Rabah or Rabah. They accomplish the first one. They destroy the Ammonites, and that's, that's fairly... Easy, all right, I'm kind of glossing over that, but that's mission accomplished. Laying siege to, to Rabah is different. Uh, that is a patient work of slowly sucking the lifeblood out of the city. In other words, you cut off their supply of, of food and water, and then you just sit around and wait. It's a fairly safe military campaign, as military campaigns go, because they're going to run out of food and water, and then they're going to come angry out and try to attack you, and then we'll just respond to that, and you know, we're going to be okay. So you just lay siege to a city. You just set up a perimeter 
cut it off in just a matter of time until they surrender. So that can go on, however, for weeks, many times months, sometimes a year or longer of laying siege to a city, which is what's happening now. So King David is at home in Jerusalem while his army is laying siege to Rabah. They're just basically waiting out, the people who are living there, waiting them out, and they're going to take over the city. It's not necessarily a problem that King David is not with his troops. Some have argued over the years that if David would have been with the troops, he wouldn't have gotten in trouble at home. I don't think that's really the the truth of the story. David was too um, important a figure to be out in the front lines of the battlefield, and and, uh, that's not always a wise decision to make militarily. David is at home, and in the the evening time, and you have to imagine no air conditioning in the world, um, David decides in the evening to to get up one night because he can't go to bed, which we've all had that problem, of course. We can't go to sleep and we'll get up and do something else and hoping that we can go to sleep. David gets up, and if you know anything about a palace um, in in that time, which most of us know very little about, here's here's the deal. It's it's the highest point in the city. You're not going to build someone's home higher than the king's palace. That's just not going to happen. So he has the highest view, the best view of the city, and he goes out to try to take in some of the evening breeze uh, that's the air conditioning, right? And this time in Jerusalem is the, the evening breezes that come in. And so he, if you can imagine that, he walks out. I don't know if he parts the curtains or whatever, but he walks out onto the, the patio or the deck, basically, and that overlooks the city. And just kind of taking in Jerusalem where he's at and trying to stay cool and, and uh, who knows what he's processing in his mind. And then, you know, many of you know the story of what happens next. As he's out there in this moment, he sees this woman bathing on the, the, the rooftop uh, right nearby. Now, her name is Bathsheba, and all of a sudden, David is like, whoa, I didn't come out here for this, but now I'm out here. And you know what happens. He goes back to bed. Well, kind of, right? He can't turn that off, and here's the problem with David. All of a sudden, he sees this beautiful woman bathing, and he begins to think in his mind, Man, I need to have her. And he has to be thinking, what's one more? Right? What's one more? I mean, I don't even think about it anymore. I already have a bunch of wives. What's one more? And he begins to ask for his servant to go get Bathsheba because he wants her. And here's what, here's what we know. He asked this servant to go get her. And here's what we read in 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. The servant says to, to her, to him, excuse me, the man said, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, an interesting statement from the servant and very unique because in the Old Testament, people um, are, um, their identity is found in their parents, not their spouse. Here's one thing I've learned about Lancaster County. This is what we do when we're trying to meet people for the first time. We'll, we'll back up the genealogy ourselves, right? Okay, back it up. Who's your mom and dad? Who's your great mom and dad? Your you know, grandma and grandpa? Who's your great, 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 great grandparents? You know, I got to find somewhere, somehow, some way. Do you, are you at least a neighbor to somebody that I used to know? I mean, I just need to find out some way. In a way, there's much similarity to what's going on here. Now, this is different what the servant does, and it's very important because it's almost like a whisper of warning to David that he ignores. No one identifies by their spouse. They only identify by their parent. And the servant says, isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife 
of Uriah the Hittite. This is unusual. It's almost like the servant is saying, I know you're in charge, king, but we're talking about the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That's strange. It's unusual. And it's the servant saying, think about it. Think about it. Here's the problem. And I love the way that someone phrases Sin doesn't announce its consequences ahead of time, does it? Sin is not like truth in lending. Many of you have signed mortgages over the years and you get one paper to sign and 1,400 other pages to read that tell you about all the lending principles that will be in play. Sin isn't like that. What David is about to do is undoubtedly sin and he can't stop it. He doesn't want to stop it. Even with this little warning. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his little work called Temptation. He, he spoke about it this way. And just listen to the way Bonhoeffer describes temptation and the suddenness that it comes on us and see if you can't relate to the humanity and the struggle in which Bonhoeffer puts this. He says, in our members, meaning like in our body, in our, in our person, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. And all at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. And the flesh burns as in flames. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. Have you ever been there? Because this is where David is. The servant issues a warning. Are we talking about the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David's flesh is seized in that moment, a sudden and fierce overtaking of his will and of his power. And the power of discrimination and decision are gone, and God is very unreal to him in that moment. All that he wants is what he wants. Go get her for me. So you know what happens. The servant goes to get Bathsheba, and she comes, and David sleeps with Bathsheba. Sends her home, and she ends up sending a message back to the king saying, hey, guess what? You know, I'm expecting. It's probably not my husband because for months he's been laying siege to Rabah. And, you know, remember that night? So David is in a little bit of trouble. So David decides, I'm going to cover this sin with another one. And many of you might know the story. He decides to invite Uriah the Hittite, his soldier and the, wife, the husband of Bathsheba, back to Jerusalem. And he invites Uriah back and he says, Uriah, hey, tell me about the battle. Strange request, and Uriah knows it. You don't need me to come back to tell you about the battle. You have people who do that, but I'll tell you because you're the king. So he tells him about the battle, and he says, very good. Why don't you go home and rest while you're, while you're here? And if you know the story, you know Uriah goes back, but does not go back into his home. And the reason for this is very interesting, because there's a study here worth, worth investigation between David and Uriah. Uriah knows that his king, David, wants his soldiers to remain pure, ceremonially pure, during battle. It's David's preference that all of his soldiers remain free from sexual contact at all because he wants all of his soldiers to be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean during battle in order to give them the best possible benefit of the blessing of God. And so as a soldier in the army, if you're going to boot camp right in the Israel army, one of the things they tell you is, listen, 
Whenever we go to battle, we are in battle mode. We, we, and that part of that means being ceremonial, ceremonially clean. And so David sends Uriah back home with the hope that he will not be a man of principle. But he is. This is a problem for David. So he comes back the second day, and David is like, hey, how did it go last night? And he said, well, I don't know. I didn't really see Bathsheba. He's like, okay, now I have a problem, so I'm going to get you drunk. And he tries to get the man drunk, and, and the hope is that in his drunken state, he will give up his principles for more base principles and go back and sleep with his wife. And if you know the story, you know that doesn't happen. Even in his drunken state, Uriah holds to the principle. He's, I'm a soldier, and this is what I do. I stay on mission no matter what. And so David is stuck, and here's a problem, and this is a big problem. Because Uriah refuses to go in there and cover David's sin for him, now somebody's going to have to die. It's the only choice. Either David is going to have to die because he committed a capital offense. What David did is worthy of being executed. Someone's going to die, and it's either David by confessing, saying, I did it, or it's going to be Uriah. Someone's going to die now. Now that Uriah, you won't go in. And the someone you know is Uriah, not David. And he sends this message back with Uriah to the battlefield, and he says, Uriah, give this to Joab, the commander of the army, and Uriah uh, does that, and he's taking this sealed envelope back to Joab. Joab is friends with Uriah, right? They know each other. They're friends with the king. And the, the command is, put Uriah at the front lines and go attack the city. It makes no sense. They're already in a victorious position. They just need to wait them out. And David said, I don't want you to wait. I want you to go, and you need to go now and put Uriah at the front of that and let me know what happens. And so they attack Reba for no military reason at all. Uriah dies in that battle because they're in a position of vulnerability, and other men around them die. They get no further along in their military campaign. It's simply a cover for David's sin. A servant goes back to King David and says, hey, here's what happened. We lost the battle. Oh, but don't worry, Uriah the Hittite died. And David says, these things happen. It's okay. Then he takes Bathsheba in and marries Bathsheba and tries to cover his sin that way, which works really well until it doesn't. And here's where we pick up where a prophet named Nathan comes in. If you have your Bible still open, turn it right over to chapter 12. Nathan the prophet comes in to deal with this situation. And he tells a story, which is a good way to get into it with a king. He tells a story of a rich man and a poor man. The poor man has one little ewe lamb, or one little sheep that he raises, and it's kind of an interesting story to, to read. Nathan paints this picture of this lamb that's uh, grown up in the home and actually sleeps like in the bed with the owner, which would not be me. Okay, I'm a sheep owner, not a sheep lover. Okay, I'm a dog owner, not a dog lover. This, this lamb is, uh, is taken right into the home and it's like the owner feeds it by hand and all that and this great, great relationship. And the rich man is then under obligation to host a guest from out of town and the rich man doesn't want to sacrifice one of his own sheep so he goes to the poor man and he takes, he takes the sheep from him and he kills it and he feeds it to the, to the guest from out of town. And Nathan is like, hey, David, as judge over Israel, what do you think should be done to that rich man? And David is like, Without hesitation, that man should die. That man should die for doing that. And then here's the, the top gun moment okay, in, in the Old Testament. And, uh, and Nathan says, you are that man. Right? You, you, you are that man. Right? You are the man who did that. 
And then there's this reflection, and this is where I want you to see in chapter 12, verses 9 into verse 10. Nathan is speaking, and he says this in, in chapter 12, verse 9. He asks the question, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, and now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Do, do you see what Nathan is saying there? Two times he uses the word despised. You despised, first of all in verse 9, the word of the Lord. And then verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. This idea of, being, of despising is not, not just an emotional word, not just a matter of I know it and I'm intentionally going against it. It's not like that. The idea of despising means to make little of. In other words, to come up small in the big moments. To value little the things that you should value greatly. David, why did you value little the Word of the Lord? Why did you value little me? Why did you despise me? Why did you come up small on what you knew that I wanted you to do? Why do you despise me? Even though you may not have felt that, even if you didn't feel like you were betraying me, the very fact that you thought little of my will and my word in the moments when you needed them the most, why did you think little of? Why did you make small the things that you should have made big? Why did you do that? Why did you despise me? Why did you despise the word of the Lord? Why did you do that? It's a great question to ask, and here's why I say that this principle is true again. That coming up small in big moments is predictable if we live unguarded. Coming up small in big moments is predictable if we live unguarded. And you know people who this is true for, right? You know people, and we're talking about a man now, David, in his 50s, who has grown successful in his success, he has grown away from relationship with people. In his success, he has grown away from accountability with people. In his success, people have given him a pass. and said, look at all the good things that he is doing. But in his private life, that seawall is being eroded with hit after hit after hit after hit. And it's only a matter of time until it falls. You know people like this, don't you? And if you're honest, maybe you have personally experienced this, haven't you? Where all of a sudden you find yourself in a, in a shocking place and you're like, why did I do that? Why did I do that? That goes against my values so much. This was a big moment for me. Why did I give in to her, to him? Why did I give in against my values and say that would be a good thing to do? Why didn't I stand up when I should have stood up to that idea or principle? Why didn't I lead my family in this moment when I should have? And here's the thing that we can back the train up to. That it's predictable. It's just predictable that we will come up small in big moments if we live unguarded. It seems at the moment when the big moment comes, it's like, that's a surprise. Wow, I can't believe David did that. That's like out of the blue. Like who would have ever thought David would have done that? And the answer is anybody who would have been tracking with David personally would have known 
David would have done that. Because that's predictable behavior when you start living unguarded. Now, I want to talk about what unguarded means. I want to talk about three things. Because these things are true for the life of David. And I think they can be true for us. And I think they're very important for you and me to think about. Number one, what does it mean to be unguarded? I'm talking about unguarded without key relationships. And this is probably the biggest thing that I see in the life of David right now. The question is, do we have someone like Nathan in our lives? For David, the question that Chuck Swindoll put out here is fair. Like, who in the world would have the authority, the moral authority, to come to someone like King David and say, David, we have an issue, we have a problem, we have, we have to talk. Like, who would have that authority? Who would have the authority to ask you or me the question before we, we do something dumb? Are you despising the word of the Lord? Are you thinking little of the things that you should think greatly of? Because here's the truth, if you put it this way. Like, we need a Nathan before we need a Nathan. I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. But we need a Nathan before we need a Nathan, don't we? Like, we, we need Nathan. But we need him before we really need him. We need him before he comes in and says, man, now you've done something dumb. We need him before that. And these are not just people that we, we carry out our hobbies with or we you know, go to lunch with here and there. These are people who can really get in to your life and into my life, who can ask the key questions of us and whom we are willing to be vulnerable to in a hard way. And I'm telling you, and you know this, this is hard. This is hard to find and hard to be. And if we're honest, most of us would say, you know what, I like the idea. And I would do that if someone were available. I just need to find somebody and no one's available, therefore I'll just keep going on as I've been going on. I've had people tell me, you know, I wish that someone could be that for me. And you know, the answer is, of course, you be that for someone. You be that for someone. And here's where this happens. Here's where this turns. There has to be someone in a relationship. And you have a whole host of relationships. There has to be somebody, somebody, to lead into an area that you're currently not leading into. There has to be somebody to say, in this relationship I have with you, you know what, I need someone to be a Nathan for me, so I'm going to invite that for me. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Think about, okay, who needs to step into this? Maybe I do. Maybe if I want someone who can help me before all of this stuff erodes in my personal life, help me stay guarded, maybe I need to be the one when we go out next time to do whatever, maybe I need to be the one to lead and say, you know what, can we talk about something? Hey, there's just something on my mind I want you to know about. Can you help me with this? And just take a step in a relationship that no one has taken before. And yes, it will be awkward, and men especially, yes, it will be difficult, yes. And men especially, yes, it'll be like talking about emotion, which I know we, we do about once a week. So you know, just get that in the right time and we'll get it knocked out. But I'm telling you, that unless we have key relationships of people like a Nathan, your life and my life, it is predictable that you and I will come up small in big moments if we live unguarded with key, without key relationships. It's just predictable. And I just, I just don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I don't want us to grow up, continue to move into our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and have something ridiculous happen and look back and say, I wish I would have stepped into a relationship with somebody because you will then look back and you're like, this was predictable. This was preventable. I wish I would have. But in the moment, maybe it's too difficult. And I just want you to think, you know what? I think I need a Nathan before I need a Nathan. I'm going to take a relationship and I'm just going to take that next step and say, you know what? I need your help. I need your help. 
this is what I'm concerned about in my life. Will you pray with me about that? It's going to take someone to lead into that. Living unguarded in key relationships makes us completely vulnerable for failure in the big moments. That's what we see in the life of David. Secondly, we can be unguarded in our conscience or in my conscience. For David, uh, it was the slow drip feed of wife after wife after wife after wife after wife. And what's one more? There's Bathsheba on the roof. She looks great. There's one more big deal. I've already done it before. Let's just go get her. The servant is like, hey, she's married. Yep, let's go get her. Let's go get her. Go get her. And the temptation took hold. Boom. And there it is. And his conscience has become seared or his heart has become hardened. And he's unguarded in that because he doesn't have the key relationships to, to found that. In the, the work on temptation, Bonhoeffer wrote again, he says, uh, in light of the seizing of temptation, he says, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there's one command, flee, flee, get out of there, move on. Uh, particularly with sexual temptation, if we don't flee, we're a dead man waiting. It, it's too strong a temptation for any of us to bear. It just simply is too strong. In a way, God intended that to be that way for the right expression of that in a marriage relationship. It can be a very great gift for a marriage. But outside of that, man, it can, it can kill you. I think we know that. So unguarded in our conscience. In other words, there's no one that I talk to. There's no confession. There's no dealing with the little steps. And then I just kind of keep going further. So unguarded in key relationships, unguarded in conscience, and then unguarded in this way. Unguarded in my will versus God's will. In other words, um, along the way, David never thought, you know what? I wonder if God would want me to have Bathsheba come up here. You just begin to think, this is what I want. It's related to the conscience, but it's also related to this fact of he did not review what he knew that God wanted him to do. In Deuteronomy 17, he knew what the king should do. The king shouldn't multiply horses, multiply wives, or multiply wealth. But it was his way or God's way, and he decided it's going to be my way. And he's living unguarded in relationship to what God would want him to do. Coming up small in big moments is predictable if we live unguarded. If we live unguarded without key relationships, if we live unguarded in relationship to our conscience and stepping over lines that we know we shouldn't step over, and if we're living unguarded in terms of what I want versus what God wants and knowing what that is. There's a sobering passage in the New Testament, and Paul writes it uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I really wish it weren't there because it's almost like, um, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, it's, it feels almost guilt-laden when you, when you read it, but I think rightly so because it's a sober warning for all of us that no matter how old you get, no matter how old you get or how far you go, there's always going to be great struggle that will come. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to show it up here for you. He says this, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Having a good day? Having a good season? Awesome. Then you are in prime position to be careful so that you don't fall. Things going well, the kingdom being built, you have 60,000 square miles under your control, you have rulers who are doing your thing, you've got more uh, money coming in and going out than anyone has ever seen before. I mean, you're a golden era, you're, leave, you're leading the land, you're doing awesome, great, good for you. Man, season's going well, business is great, family is good, spouse is great, kids are awesome, nothing is wrong in your world at all, man, that's super. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Think you're doing well? Think things are going well? Be careful, lest you fall. Not meant to put a dark cloud over joy or praise or worship. Please don't take it that way. Meant to be a sober warning. That in the times of greatness, in the times of great celebration, of things that are going well, do not live unguarded. 
Do not live without key relationships then. Do not live without your conscience being continually pricked by the Word of God and by people. Do not live with just going into your will versus God's will because it is predictable that if we live unguarded, we will come up small in big moments. And for David, that had some terrible consequences for people around him. People died because of him. His legacy was tarnished as if that really matters in light of people dying. His entire family was thrown up in turmoil because of this. God's punishment on him was that he was going to allow him to be king, but he said the sword will never depart from your house. Indeed, his children are, are trying to kill each other. His stepchildren are sexually assaulting one another. I mean, he's got a dysfunctional family. Because of his sin in this big moment, he came up small, and here's the consequences. And Paul reminds us, hey, be careful lest you fall. There's part of life that is predictable. And if you and I live unguarded, I'm telling you, you know this, it's only a matter of time until the seawall erodes because of the current that keeps coming if we live unguarded. David's life here is a time of great sin. There's no question about that. This is the low point in David's existence as a man, as a leader, as a ruler. But his story is still one in which we still name our children David. You know why? Because where sin runs deep, grace runs even more. Right? That even in the middle of his failure, in the middle of his worst sin, God is still gracious. And I don't know about you, but to me, it's an incredible, incredible encouragement. Because whatever you're dealing with, whatever failures you've had, whatever you've thought about this week that you hope that no one ever knows that you have thought about, whatever season you're in, whatever addiction that you're dealing with that you hope no one else here finds out about, whatever struggle you have privately with whoever it is that you hope just never you know, kind of goes away, whatever insecurities you have that are keeping you from you know, believing God and all that, but whatever all that stuff is, here's the deal. Look at the life of King David. Sleeps with another woman, has her husband killed, has other people killed. The sword never leaves his home, and yet God is gracious to this man. Where sin runs deep, grace runs even more. And so before you kill yourself for your sin, before you keep beating yourself up for your sin and go back home and beat yourself up over all the terrible things that you do, remember, we serve an incredible God who can pull us through so many things because of His great grace. It can be a warning to us. Don't live unguarded. Step into a relationship. Step back into allowing your conscience to be touched by the will and the Word of God so that your life and my life don't become a predictable pattern of coming up small in big moments. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance this morning to look at the life of David and the struggle that he had with himself in this big moment of falling into this temptation. It is a sober warning for us that a man who is so successful, so powerful, so gracious and kind, so loving as David, would fall into something like this with such far-reaching consequences. And I pray that you would help us to continue to guard our lives, to have people like Nathan in our lives before we even need people like Nathan in our lives. To begin, if we haven't already, to say, you know what, I need 
that kind of relationship. Therefore, I'm going to create that kind of relationship. I'm going to step into this with somebody that I know. I'm going to have one conversation this week. I'm going to move a relationship I currently have to another level, even though it's scary and we've never talked like that before. All we do is joke around or all we do is talk light or talk about the kids and their activities. You know what? I'm going to move this relationship further this week because I need a Nathan before I need a Nathan. Father, I pray that you would help us as kind of a warning shot across the bow as the servant whispered to King David, hey, she's the wife of Uriah, that we would take that warning heed and say, yep, I don't want to come up small in the big moments. I don't want to come up small in the big moments. I want to live my life guarded that I know God's will and that I'm helped with that. We thank you that your grace runs even more. Father, we need your strength. We need your help to do the things that otherwise we are afraid to do. I pray that you give us the courage to do what we know we need to do and not delay and not wait. Not to wait for someone else, but to be the people that we know we need to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I pray that this closing song will be the spirit of our heart and the cry of our heart here this, this season of life. And we need our God to do great things in and through us because of him, not because of us. I'm grateful for you guys, grateful to be walking this journey with you guys. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to be, to be serving alongside of you. And we want the best. I want the best for you and for your faith and for your legacy you pass on to your next generation of children, to be men and women who grow up to know and love and serve the God, the Bible, the God who cares and loves for people around them. And I want your life to be, to be predictable in the right way and to live guarded in the right way. I won't preach sermon number two. Love you guys, and I, and I hope we keep rolling in the right direction. Have courage to do the things you know you need to do. As we wrap up here this morning, um, we're going to take just about a five-minute break. Come right back in for those who'd like to. We'd love to, to have you. No more than 10 minutes. Learn about safe families. Uh, we'd love to share that story with you, all right? Be courageous. Love you guys. You're dismissed.